Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have uh, left in the comments section of my Q&A videos. I will check those out and pull questions out of there too. Put them into my great big question queue uh, and get to them every week as I try to do here. So hi, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me into your home. And uh, we got some great questions to answer this week. Before we do, I wanted to give you guys a heads up that you should definitely check out the podcast this week, an insider view of Scientology, as I am talking to yet another person who is uh, leaving Scientology or is mentally out but this person is still physically in. It was the very first anonymous interview, uh, you know, hidden cloaked interview I've done where I had to disguise his voice and not show him on the screen. So that posted yesterday. And also, I know a lot of you guys don't necessarily check out my Critical Conversations shows on Friday night. That's the live call-in show we do. But this week, I broke down in an hour... Uh, what is going on on the OT levels, what people actually are doing in the auditing and how it affects them and their ego. And I was specifically talking about Tom Cruise and I was talking about all other Scientology OTs. But if you ever wondered why this guy is so over the top or so ridiculously over the top and such an ego maniac... Uh, because if there is one thing I think a lot of people could agree on with Tom Cruise, even if you love his work and can't stop gushing over it, uh, and I am not in that camp, um, I think we can all agree that the guy has a little bit of an ego problem. And, uh, and that is fed by and created by uh, Scientology and by OT auditing. Uh, it is a very, very, very bad influence on people. Uh, and we go into some detail about that, and I break it all down. So I really hope you guys will check that show out. It was It's a lengthy explanation, and I hope that it helps clarify um, why we call groups like Scientology a destructive cult. It destroys things. You know, it's harmful to you. It is, it is not just harmful to your bank account or harmful to your social life. It is actually damaging mentally, physically, you know, sort of psychologically, right? All right. So I think we all know that, of course, but I always like to emphasize these points of how and why and really break it down for you guys because um, I think understanding it helps to prevent it, not just with Scientology, but with other situations and groups as well. All right, so I also wanted to put a quick plug in to remind everybody that this show, this channel is fan funded by you guys. And if you are enjoying the quality of my work, uh, then I encourage you to please support this channel um, because uh, that's how I keep the show going and the lights on and all of that, quite literally. Um, this is my job. This is what I do, and I want to do it well. So um, you might have also noticed a little rebranding going on. You'll be seeing some new thumbnails on my videos popping up soon. Um, and I've already got the new header and all that kind of stuff. So you can see a little bit of uh, re-imaging here now that I have completed my uh, master's program. All right, enough internal house cleaning or whatever announcements. Let's get on with your questions. Adam Masters. Can you talk about what happens to people who get declared SP for reasons that are not related to questioning Scientology doctrine? I'm thinking of all those involved in the Chase Wave scandal who probably thought they were, quote unquote, making it go right, and who are still dedicated believers who then suddenly find themselves effectively excommunicated. 
would they just have been removed from staff or the Sea Org, but still participating as a public Scientologist, or are they booted out completely? I can understand that any organization needs to hold people accountable for criminal or unacceptable behavior, but I don't recall any incidents in other religions where scandals of terrible things, such as abuse, have resulted in the person being denied the ability to participate in their faith, as opposed to just being removed from a leadership position or officially employed by a church. And on a related subject, did you ever meet someone who, after being declared an SP, successfully completed their A to E steps and rejoined Scientology? Did you notice a change in their commitment to Scientology and did they stay around for a long time? All right, Adam, thank you for these questions. These are good. Um, and when you're, of course, talking about declared SP, you're referring to a suppressive person. This is the uh, label of an enemy of Scientology. Scientologists think about SPs as antisocial personalities, as psychotic, as uh, anti-human, as people who are trying to destroy things, and uh, generally really bad people, right? Generally criminal, that kind of thing. Uh, I have been declared a suppressive person by the Church of Scientology. That is an official label I carry around with me. Um, I don't, you know, wear it like a... Uh, uh, anyway, you guys get the idea. All right, so... Um, let's go ahead and talk about this because I am getting it, information from uh, the insider, from Catherine, from other people I've been speaking with that have indicated over the years, um, like with the RPF being canceled, we are now seeing not, let's be clear, we are not seeing a kinder, a kinder gentler Sea Org, but we are seeing a shift in Scientology in terms of SP declares. They used to hand these things out like candy, and when they would hand out, and when you were declared a suppressive person, you were directed to uh, only speak with or interact with the International Justice Chief, or IJC, and this was the senior ethics and justice person in Scientology that you would then be able to contact, deal with, doing your A to E steps, the very the necessary actions you would need to take in order to get back into good standing with the Church of Scientology. Because clearly, when they declare you an enemy, a suppressive person, you're not in good standing anymore. No Scientologist is going to talk to you, deal with you. They have, to, they have to disconnect from you. And this includes family, friends, business associates, anybody. If they're Scientologists, they cannot be connected with you anymore. You're suppressive. So, um, so it's kind of a big deal. So much so that it has been the point of an awful lot of PR and media about Scientology over the last 20 years. This whole business of forced uh, separation, forced disconnection, uh, you know, families, being, families being ripped apart and that kind of thing is really bad PR. It's bad imaging for Scientology. And like the RPF and the whole... Miscavige found himself on the receiving end of very uncomfortable questions, you know, from reporters and journalists and all that kind of stuff were trying to contact him. Not that he was particularly answering their calls, but you understand there's an awful lot of bad press out there about Scientology because of this policy of enforced disconnection. All right, you get declared, you're out of here. And um, it's a very, very extreme form of religious shunning. And this is something that we've seen in the Mennonites and the, you know, the... Uh, 
the Amish are famous for this, even though they don't really uh, engage in it the same way. But the Mennonites do, and there's other groups, lots and lots and lots of groups, uh, who engage in some form of religious shunning or disconnection. But very few, other than, say, in the Muslim world, where you see apostates killed, um, you know, when you find that kind of extremism. But other than that, there's very other, there's very little in the form of, of that level of extreme disconnection kind of policy in the, um, in the religious world. Okay, so anyway, that all being said, um, they have been changing or shifting their policies. And I was actually somebody who experienced this firsthand back in 2012 when it was offered to me that I would be made to do my A to E steps to get back into good standing, but I was not being declared a suppressive person. It was openly acknowledged that I had committed suppressive acts. I had gone online. I had complained publicly about the Church of Scientology. I had complained publicly about uh, David Miscavige, L. Ron Hubbard, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because, of course, I had kind of come to my senses and started posting about it because I was so upset. And in that, you know, uh, they found out about it and they uh, found those posts and they held me accountable for them. And they said, this is suppressive. This is a suppressive act. You should be declared a suppressive person. But we're not going to do that, see? We're just going to make you do your A to E anyway. And that is when they enforced the disconnection on me too. I actually started doing those steps in an effort to avoid that enforced disconnection. And had they let me do that, I'd still be in Scientology. I wouldn't necessarily still be a believer. I was already out of the headspace of it. But you would not be seeing me on YouTube doing all the things I've done. I would never have written a book. I would never have gone on Leah's show. I would never have done any of these things uh, if they had just let me in peace get through my steps. <laughs> but they couldn't even do that, right? They have to mess with you. It is in their DNA. The, you know, you, there are so many mistakes they make. There are so many things they do to create their own trouble, to create enemies. And, uh, and that's what they did to me. And that's what they're doing to other people now. But it's not always resulting in that whole bad disconnection thing. I took off because I was pissed, right? Because they, they did the disconnection thing on me too. But with Sea Org members or with staff, they are now not necessarily kicking them to the curb, not necessarily forcing them to uh, be declared suppressive, especially, I'm told, if... They have active family or connections in the church because they've come to realize, oh, this makes enemies. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't do this, right? We'll get this guy in trouble. So, okay, so let's say you have one of the Reges who was doing the chase wave thing, and he is in all kinds of trouble. He was just been removed from post. He's been sacked, but he's not getting declared. He, you know, he did not, you know, maybe, maybe one or two or three of the guys who were really hardcore committing like illegal acts or something could be prosecuted. Like they might have to review those guys, but here's just Joe Schmo sales guy. Right. And he's not necessarily in the hot seat for, you know, legal prosecution, but he's, you know, but, but Miscavige is pissed at him for doing this stuff. And so now he's busted and now he's guilty of suppressive acts. They're, oh, believe me, they can dig up whatever kind of. You know, they can twist those suppressive acts around however to mean whatever they want. So, yeah, this guy is now guilty of suppressive acts. 
And, you know, maybe he's got to do his A to E or maybe he's got to do some other invented steps they're going to make him do because they're not going to kick him out and they're not going to declare him and they're not going to send him to the RPF because they canceled the RPF. They don't have that anymore. So they have this thing called the Category B EPF. And we have talked about that. I've done, I've, I've talked about that, answered questions about it in the past. You can actually find that in my uh, Critical Clips channel. There's a little video, what is the Category B EPF? I think you can look that up there. Um, uh, or the EPF things or whatever, they're in there somewhere. And, um, and this is a sort of recovery or, or, sorry, a rehabilitation step or a get him back, you know, send him back to boot camp, basically, to, to get his basics back in and get him back on the straight and narrow. And, they, and they, basically what they're doing with the Category B EPF, you don't have to go dig up some other video for it. Basically, what they're doing is making him go back to boot camp and get their asses kicked and get run around and get put on a tight schedule. And, and it's not the RPF and it's not where they're going to be co-auditing, you know, evil purposes on each other all day, but they are going to be writing up all their transgressions and they're going to be doing a lot of hard work and they're going to be proving their loyalty again. And they're going to be, you know, getting themselves all squared away by telling themselves that they're there because it's all their fault. And they have to accept that reality and accept responsibility for all of their you know, awful, horrible evilness. So that's that's what a Category B EPF is all about. And that's what they're tending to do with people now, at least as far as Sea Org members go. Um, you know, you can always, I guess, get rid of staff, but staff are kind of, uh, they don't go to Cat B EPF. I'm talking about like here at the local Denver Church of Scientology, that's not a Sea Org outfit. So they're not going to be sending people back to boot camp, but they will run them through a committee of evidence which is that um, basically taking them to court and prosecuting them for crimes is it's the that would be the equivalent in the outside world in a, in the Sea Org or in the Scientology. If you get a committee of evidence, you are in all kinds of trouble, but you're not getting kicked to the curb necessarily, and you are not getting declared. So they um, so this is kind of here's the thing about this, and the reason why it gets very hard for me to be able to talk about. What's happening now in Scientology with any real certainty is it's so different now from when I was in just 10 years ago. So much has changed. So many of the rules have just been thrown to off the cliff. Policy letters that used to be followed to the letter are now not even known about. They're ignored. Miscavige has really morphed and changed the whole culture of Scientology by removing all of the upper management level, by um, by giving you know by dumping it on the people who are left, by uh, overworking these people, of course, and by changing and morphing all of the framework of Scientology, he's really made it a bit of a of an arbitrary kind of well, let's roll our own rules and see what happens, you know. And different bases have been dealing with COVID and with other problems. In different ways, they're just kind of left to figure it out for themselves, and the the city level churches are even are even worse condition right now, and so there's really like you're really kind of more wondering right now if there is even a hand on the rudder. I mean, it seems like it's so the the ship is buckling back and forth in these turbulent seas, and it doesn't really feel like there's anybody you know calling the shots or really directing what's. What's, what's going on from a master plan kind of level? It's all do this and do that and do the other thing. And so people who get in trouble now are being dealt with, 
but it seems like there are more restrictions on, okay, well, we're not going to declare them if they've got family or friends or connections, or if they're going to be trouble for us, we don't want to make more trouble, but this guy's all in all kinds of trouble. So we got to deal with him now, but we can't, you know, we're not going to do this and we're not going to RPF him and we're not going to, you know, so you kind of have these strictures of like, well, there's these things where we're not going to do anymore. That used to be no-brainers. I mean, you screwed up in the Sea Org, you were going to the RPF. I mean, that's just how it was. And the RPF grew to, you know, a couple hundred people at one point because there were so many people getting busted um, over different time periods. And so that used to be just the regular, yeah, boom, you're on the RPF, right? You're out of here. Or if you didn't screw up that bad, but you screwed up, you know, kind of bad, you'd go to the Cat BEPF. That was still a thing. You'd go back to boot camp, right? That was sort of the Sea Org discipline and dealing with with people. But now, I don't know, Joe's going to get one, going to be dealt with one way and Bill's going to get dealt with another way, depending on where they are or who they are or what happened, you know, or what their connections are. So it's really kind of interesting to watch this sort of devolve. I mean, this structure that existed, you know, the thing about structures, rules, the, the frameworks of these cults or these groups is that they give you some degree of predictability. You know, you know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. You know, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And the only real danger here then, and the, and the, and the, the sort of shark swimming in the, in the mix here is the cult leader who can come down and break any of these rules anytime he wants. And that always has people on edge. And so you never know when the cult leaders around what's going to happen, what's going to go down. But when he's not around, or she's not around, or the leadership isn't around, everybody's kind of got these rules to follow, and they're loyal little followers, so they're trying to follow the rules as best they can. But when you go in and destroy the rules and mess the rules and break the rules and change the rules and, 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 and say these rules were based on some you know bad editor, and that wasn't ever Hubbard who said that, and you just make everything so uncertain and so unsure... Nobody really has a whole lot to hold on to anymore, or they don't really know. There's grasping at straws, you know, kind of thing. And it feels an awful lot like that's kind of what's going on in Scientology these days based on what we're hearing. So when it comes to the firm discipline channels that Scientology has classically held on to as part of its, uh, you know, the, the most one of the most core things you could kind of count on in Scientology is that if you committed suppressive acts, you were getting declared, you know, or you were going to the RPF or you were going to be in all kinds of trouble. You're going to have a couple hundred hours of sec checking or something, right? And now, man, who knows? Who knows what's going to happen to you? And again, this is not uh, me saying that it's a kinder, kinder gentler Sea Org, it's just as crazy, just as fanatical, and the rules are just as nuts. But the but what I'm saying is the certainty with which you'll know what's going to happen to you is just kind of out the window now. And that doesn't bode well for the long-term survival of this organization because it is predictability and stability and, and knowing where you're going that creates a, a steady, eddy kind of future which is the position Scientology should be trying to get itself in right now. It's been around for 70, 72 years. You know, it's, it's, it's well past its infancy stage. It should have very set rules and policies. And instead, it's a loosey-goosey, you know, jello. So 
Uh, so those are so that's just kind of some more broad maybe commentary than you were looking for in answer to this question, Adam. But I wanted to kind of put that out there as to why it is that I can give you an answer according to what L. Ron Hubbard wrote. And I can now tell you kind of what's going on in the church now that Miscavige is doing and the other people who are there and running things and making decisions, because he's not the only person making decisions, what they're doing now. And it's so different, these two things, that I'm like, wow, I don't even recognize this thing anymore in some ways. And, and of course, what I'm seeing and, and what I'm describing to you is kind of, I thought it was going to take another 10 years to get to where we're at now. I thought the de-evolution of this and the sort of the, you know, the breakdown of it was going to take longer. So, um, so maybe they'll, maybe they'll get their, you know, collective, uh, whatever together and, and, and Miscavige will, will kind of pick this up out of the ashes and, and create something new, but I'm not holding my breath. Now, as far as, um, you know, on a related subject, did I ever meet somebody who had done the A to E steps and gotten back into good standing? Yeah, I have. I've met a, a couple people who have done that. It's a lot of damn work. It's months or years of work. Um, you know, make you got to jump through a lot of hoops, all kinds of crap you got to go through to do those A to E steps. Mostly, it involves paying the church a lot of money and a lot of hours of amends work where you're independently of the Scientology organizations, you can't go into the churches anymore, associate with Scientologists. You got to do all this on your own. So you can get Scientology materials and you can go out and pass them out, you know, apply Scientology in some big way in your life and prove what a great Scientologist you are. But I think mostly it revolves around, you know, paying money, right? Here's the money, right? Make it rain uh, to Scientology so that you can prove that you're still loyal and dedicated and uh, that kind of thing, right? So, so that's what people do to get through those steps. And um, I did meet two people in my time in Scientology who did them to completion, got back in, in good standing. And, um, you know, I don't know. Did they stay around for a long time after? I, I don't know. I don't think so. One of them's out. I don't know about the other one. Uh, so there you go. Steve Wood. As we're all aware, membership in Scientology is falling drastically and is probably at an all-time low right now. What, in your opinion, is the number one reason for the dropping numbers? What is the number one cause for people leaving? Is it because eventually people realize they've been conned and it doesn't work? That would be my opinion, but I'd like to hear from you. All right, thank you for this question, Steve. And of course, you're asking for my conjecture here. I have no knowledge of statistics or surveys to fall back on as to be able to give you any actual data I have none to look at as to why people are leaving right now. We have a lot of different reasons why people could be leaving right now, as we've laid out in the last couple shows. And uh, for me to take a, you know, a stab at what's the number one reason, well, I don't know. I mean, the insider and I spoke and he talked about how uh, we talked about the COVID protocols and how that was a bridge too far for people and because it clashed with their conspiracy theory ideas. And that's a very different idea from what you suggest as far as people realizing they've been conned and it doesn't work. I think that's something that comes very much later in a person's sort of leaving, that you can actually leave the church without realizing that the whole thing is a con and it doesn't work. I mean, independent Scientologists have never realized that. You know, they realize some parts of the con, but they really don't get it. 
And so that's not necessarily the requirement in order to leave. And it's certainly not the number one people, number one reason why people leave. And, and in order to answer this question, like my last one, I'm going to go broad um, because I don't, I, I, you know, I don't have the data to tell you, well, this is the one reason. But what I can tell you is the more broad reason why. And, and it's really a more accurate kind of assessment because the thing is, every single person who joins a cult and leaves a cult does so, both joining and leaving, for highly personal reasons to them. You know, you can categorize, of course. You can, you know, you could kind of make categories and put people in them for why they leave. But the real reason they're leaving is intensely personal to them. And really, the way that I've come to describe this is... In order to start waking up, in order to start like snapping out of the extremist or the cult mindset where you are not questioning, you are loyal to a fault, you are an extremist, all of these are synonymous with a lack of critical thinking or skepticism or questioning of the topic at hand. And a person can be an extremist in a very, you know, narrow area and not be that way in other parts of their life. There's a lot of siloing and, and stuff going on here. It doesn't, of course, there's also not that. There's times when people are, you know, not narrow at all. They are, they're not critical or skeptical or critical thinkers about anything. You know, they've got very, very set beliefs and ideas about how things work and this is how it is and they don't question any part of it. So you've got a whole range here to deal with when you're talking about the full spectrum of humanity and the way we go about believing, accepting, uh, and acting on belief. Uh, okay, so that all being said, in order to wake somebody up or for in order for a person to start waking up, they have to experience uh, – this is, this is my thing. I, I am the one saying this. I don't know that I – that uh, other cult experts or people will tell you this, but this is how I've put it, and so far nobody's disagreed with me. And that is that you have to experience an unforgivable moral transgression committed by the organization or its leadership, which affects the individual so personally that it cannot be denied or reasoned away. Okay, let me give that to you again. Uh, in order to wake a person up, in order for a person to start waking up from a cult or extremist mindset, they have to experience an unforgivable moral transgression committed by the organization or its leadership, which affects the individual so personally that it cannot be denied or reasoned away. That's what has to happen. And there are a million ways that could happen because... A moral transgression is highly relative to the individual. What, what assaults your reality, what offends you, might not mean anything to me or Joe or Sally, right? What's going to affect them, what's going to really just get under their skin and just, ugh, just be a splinter in their mind, right, might mean nothing to you. Or it might mean something, but it doesn't mean something like that. It's not that strong. It's not that big of a deal, right? 
So this is the moral transgression part. It's, 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 it has to do with your own morals, your own idea of what's right and wrong, good and bad. But the thing about these groups that we can count on, whether you're talking about a cult, whether you're talking about a narcissistic relationship, a, a, a bad in, you know, interpersonal, uh, sorry, intimate partner violence situation, um, you know, gangs, things like this, trafficking situations. Again, here I'm referring to, you know, coercive control situations. The thing about these situations is they are universally bad. They are universally destructive. There is no such thing as intimate partner violence in a healthy, productive relationship. These two things don't go together. There is no such thing as a destructive cult that's good for you or that has long-term value or benefit to you. So these groups are inherently bad or the situation is inherently bad. And so it's really only a matter of time Almost 100% of the time, it's almost, it's just a matter of time before that partner or that group or that cult leader is going to do something that's just going to be too much for you to deal with. You're just not, I, what? He did what? Right? And it doesn't even have to be a moral transgression committed against you personally. It simply has to be something that happens either to you or that you observe happen that you, that is unforgivable and which cannot be denied or reasoned away. And, and we all have our breaking points. We all have our, you know, our deal breakers, our points where, nap, 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 you know, there is no such thing as unconditional love. We all have conditions. And what those conditions are might be really out there. But, you know, we've all got something. And, um, and when that deal maker, you know, that, sorry, that deal breaker happens... That moral transgression is committed. Like, for example, you know, I love my mom. And uh, and if the church told me, you know, you have to disconnect from your mom, that would have been too much, right? That, they almost, they did try to tell me that. That didn't fly. I talked them out of that, right? But had they really pursued that, uh, you know, I would have been out of there a lot earlier uh, because that would have been too much, right? That's a moral transgression on, you know, that's good and bad. That's right and wrong. That's like, no, no way, man. You, you don't have the right to tell me that I don't get to talk to my mom anymore. That would have been too much for me, right? But for some people, that's not enough. They don't like their mom. They don't have a problem with their mom or they do like their mom, but not as much as they like Scientology in the moment, right? So you tell them they got to break up with their mom because their mom's, you know, declared suppressive and or the mom's a troublemaker or whatever, they go, yeah, wow, that's them, them's the breaks. Okay, I guess I got to. Oh, well, gee, shoot, you know. It's not as big of a deal for that person, in other words. So it's so it can't be the case where I can tell you, well, the number one reason everybody leaves is because they get told to disconnect from their mom, right? It just doesn't quite work that way. So that's that's why I wanted to kind of answer and go a little broad rather than, you know, go narrow. But I do absolutely invite you to check out that podcast I did with The Insider and check out the interviews I'm doing with Catherine Olson recently because they're giving us some pretty present time information on what's been going on in the church. And from that, you can see the kind of things that are pissing off Scientologists to no end right now. You know, these moral transgressions I'm talking about. If you start violating a person's conspiracy theory too much, to them, that's a moral transgression. They can't deal with that. What do you mean 9-11 truthers aren't real? What do you mean Q isn't real? What do you mean Trump's not the savior of, of America? What? You know, that's too much for them. They've, they've gone too far down that rabbit hole. 
So the moral transgression doesn't even have to be based on truth, right? It's, a, it's all a matter of viewpoint for the person, right? The, what their estimation of good and bad, right and wrong is. And, uh, and getting them to wake up requires that they be offended, you know, like significantly. And, uh, and that's what starts the wheels turning. Sometimes it's not immediate. It's not like, it's, no, it's not like a light switch. Not at all. I mean, you know, hell, the first, the first kind of things that were happening to me that could be described this way started 10 years before I left. So sometimes it can take a while to brew and sometimes you need, you know, more than one, but I'm telling you that just one will start the wheels turning in the person's mind. They'll start doubting, questioning, thinking about their involvement or what's going on around them. And that's how it happens. That's how it starts. So I don't know. I hope that answer is, is, uh, is satisfactory to your question, Steve. Um, like, you know, I, 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 it's not really an answer to the question you asked, but I hope it addresses the subject matter enough that it helps, uh, helps you understand where we're, where we're coming from on this. Alex C. The Heaven's Gate cult actually held a series of public meetings where they could be questioned directly. During such a Q&A session, do you think there was anything anyone could have said that would have caused the leaders to question or change their beliefs? How common is it for a cult to open themselves up to such scrutiny? Thanks for this question, Alex. This is actually a really good question um, because cults rarely open themselves up to scrutiny like this. It's policy, for example, in the Church of Scientology to never do anything like this. You would never publicly debate or engage in a public forum uh, with Scientology beliefs uh, against an antagonistic or opposition person. Um, they just don't open themselves up to that. And there are lots of, you know, uh, cults that are just like, yep, nope, uh -uh, we're not doing anything like that. That's, um, it's almost characteristic of the groups that they don't do that. They're very cloistered, shut off, and don't allow questioning or open discussion of their beliefs. Um, Marshall Applewhite, interesting guy. And while I'm not fully read on the whole thing, um, I know that this was a guy who was absolutely a true believer in what he was doing, as were all of his followers. And they believed with everything in their heart, they believed that what they were doing in destroying their vessel was allowing themselves the freedom to go and live an ascended life, a better life, and you know, amongst the aliens or whatever. And this was a this was such a firm belief in their minds that it was inconceivable to them to think about it any other way. They were they had convinced themselves that they were going from one state of existence to a higher state of existence, and they had convinced themselves so thoroughly that they were lit, willing to literally. Uh, put their money where their mouth is, put their, you know, uh, take the pills, kill themselves, uh, you know, drink the Kool-Aid, whatever, uh, in order to attain that new state of existence. And there were, you know, there's a lot of things going on psychologically there. It's not some simple Simon light switch situation. You've got, um, you know, some of them coming from broken homes, some of them not broken homes, but all of them having some kind of issue with their family and certainly cognitive functional problems. I am positive here, uh, play a role in this. In other words, these are people who really didn't have a very thorough grasp or understanding of what was going on. 
but it's not but it's but the intelligence factor is a lesser factor there than the belief right again the emotional commitment very 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 strong there so that all being said could you go in and is there anything you could say yes there is but not in that situation one of the other things you have there is you have them as a group you have more than one of them over there and this this peer pressure actually peer pressure is not really the right word community the sense of community the 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 communication and emotional investment of the group as a group in its individuals and what those individuals feel they they are empowered by the faith and belief and reassurances of their group and these people around them they have adopted as their authority figures they these are the people they listen to these are the people whose opinions they care about these are the people who they're on the exact same wavelength with the exact same page uh, and when it comes to being on the same page with other people about extremist beliefs, you recognize, you know, the rest of the world doesn't agree with us. The rest of the world thinks we're crazy. And that becomes your badge of honor. That becomes your identification. That becomes the, the your, that's the feature. It's not a bug. Everybody else doesn't agree with you. It's a feature that they don't agree with you because they don't get it. We do. And this is this level of certainty and this level of emotional commitment and then the group reinforcement of it. That's what you're walking into when you're looking at talking to these people in that forum. So is there something you could say? Probably not, actually. Not in that situation, but if you could get one of them alone, right? See, coercive control is built on isolation, manipulation, and control. This isolation factor is important. What does isolation do? It removes you from that empowerment that the group or your fellow per people, your friends, your family are giving you. You're alone now. You're vulnerable. You are more vulnerable. Your ability to hold your ground, be certain, hold on to your principles and beliefs is automatically lessened because you're not being bolstered and, and reassured and, and uh, you know, kind of lifted by the rest of your group. And that's how we fall prey to the manipulation and coercion of a coercive control situation is we're, we're vulnerable because we're alone. Uh, but conversely, if you want to get a person out of a cult situation, you got to get them away from the group, right? Because the group has that influence, that power over them. So, um, so you're not trying to coercively control them, but, you know, but isolating them, getting them alone is kind of important for this because then you can address the individual. And when you're dealing with a group of people, it becomes a wall and they're not individuals. They are a united front against you. And that's not so easy to crack. Not at all. Right. In fact, it involves a whole other tool set. Um, because now you're now you're dealing with a group of people, a group of emotions, and that requires more what we call propaganda techniques. That's mass manipulation, right? How do you deal with a group and get them to change their mind about something? You use propaganda techniques. And that's a different thing than what you do one-on-one -on -one with somebody. Uh, right? So... Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's, I don't know. So that's what I can say about that. I don't know. I just thought I, I, th I would take this opportunity to talk about that. 
uh, group versus individual dynamic, because uh, I think that's kind of uh, what's what's present there in your question. Um, you know, if you're looking for uh, you know some kind of a gotcha or or you know some some one off, you could give to somebody in that situation that would get them to wake up or something. I've already covered in detail many, many, many times that there is no such thing, right? You got to deal with the individual in front of you. And, and maybe if you could throw general seeds out there, then they might come to fruition eventually. But, you know, with a group like Heaven's Gate, they had a timetable, right? They had a, they, 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 we're going to this date and then we're going. Uh, that's a tougher, tougher, much tougher uh, situation to deal with. Okay, there you go. Eagle's Flight. A while back, an SO member told a friend that he had a new 2D. I realized I never liked that term. It lacks any emotional commitment, but I guess in the Sea Org, that is a good thing, as marriages are often temporary and couples often separate for years. Do you think labeling relationships with a number and letter tends to make them less valuable? Yes, absolutely, I think that. I definitely think that it makes them less valuable. The whole point of labels or what we you know, might refer to also as thought-stopping cliches in groups like Scientology is that they try to get you to shut down your thinking, not get you thinking more. And of course, a second dynamic or a 2D, that's what the 2D stands for is the second dynamic, is one of the eight dynamics that Scientology that L. Ron Hubbard created in order to sort of silo or compartment life and how life works and, and, the, and the compartments of your life. So you have you as an individual, that is your first dynamic or your 1D. You, sex, the act of sex, the act of procreating, having a family, your immediate family, your mom, dad, all those guys, that's your second dynamic. Groups you belong to, like a job you have or a hobby group or meetup group or something like that, that's a third dynamic. Every one of those are third dynamics or three Ds. This is how it's expressed or talked about in Scientology, right? Um, so your 2D tends to be the person your spouse you're married to or your, or your girlfriend or boyfriend. And that's your 2D. That's what they call it, right? It's just really Scientology lingo. And it's another way of reinforcing the Scientology way of thinking. You know, you load the language so you keep people in that mindset. And you keep people thinking about life this way with the dynamics. And that connects to ethics in Scientology, which is all about the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics. Right. But really what that computes out to is as long as it's good for Scientology, it's good for you. And if it's not good for Scientology, it's not good for you. Uh, is, is how that equation always ends up really playing out. But anyway, as far as this label on the 2D thing, yeah, absolutely it helps devalue it because it's no longer a person. See, it's just a label. Uh, now, of course, we have other labels, spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, that kind of thing. But, um, but you notice that those are not as generic of terms and that those terms don't have any sort of, uh, they, the, the, the 2D doesn't have any real inherent affection or love or appreciation in it. It's more supposed to represent this whole area of your life, and then it gets reduced down to representing a person in your life that you have sex with. <laughs> it's like, okay, uh, you know, that's kind of what it represents. And uh, sure, of course, that's not very uh, uh, good, and it helps you to, um, what it does in that, in that, in that greatest good equation 
is it helps solidify the idea that this spouse, this partner, this life partner you're supposed to be involved with that you're madly, truly, deeply in love with, that's how I think about spouses and partners, is it, all of that kind of goes away because now it's just another dynamic. It's just one of these eight, and it really doesn't have any more significance than one of eight. It, that's all it is, right? It's two of eight. And so it really does serve to reduce the importance of it. It serves to make it just a number in an equation and not really be as, as prominent or significant to you as it should be. So, yeah, so that's what I can say about that. Jonathan Perry, why do some Thetans find bodies and some just get stuck to them? Why can't a Thetan become a whale or a raccoon or a plant? What's the difference between having a human body and having another form of life? All right, Jonathan, these are all questions regarding um, or getting around the topic of spirituality and Scientology uh, with Thetans. A Thetan is the term for a spiritual entity in Scientology. And a body Thetan is the term for a semi-conscious or unconscious Thetan who has been clustered, shoved together with you and many, many other body Thetans. And this is what you address on the OT levels as I, as I broke down the other night. So why do some Thetans find bodies and some just get stuck to them? It's because they were all trapped together in an incident that was extremely damaging and destructive to them. That's what causes clustering, is they're all in a group engram of some kind. Um, so, for example, uh, when Xenu came and uh, dragged everybody to Earth 75 million years ago, according to Scientology lore, uh, trillions of Thetans were brought here. And they were all exploded with atomic weapons and run through this, you know, this mill, this grist mill of, of implants. And all kinds of horrible, awful things were done to them. And because it was all done to all of them all at once or in a sort of assembly line manner, these, these trillions of Thetans kind of globbed together because Hubbard said that's what happens when there's a collective trauma of this nature is they will cluster I don't know why. Hubbard probably explained it in terms of energy flows or some other nonsense if he bothered to explain it at all. I haven't looked up the references on it, the Hubbard writings on it to, to check for this question. I'm just, I'm just answering off the top of my head here. But, I did, but I, this clustering is a result of this group collective trauma. And that's why you have you who is not necessarily as affected by this trauma as they were. And that's why they're body thetans and you're not. You're just a thetan thetan. As far as why can't a thetan become a whale or a raccoon or a plant, they can. There's, no, there's nothing stopping a thetan from assuming the identity of anything, including a phone, a, you know, a rock, a table. They can be whatever they want. Whatever a thetan can pervade or, or experience, he can be. Uh, what's the difference between a human body and another form of life? There isn't one. Uh, human bodies or human bodies. The, there is a thing called a genetic entity that Hubbard talks about in terms of this sort of evolutionary life force that sort of forces or uh, makes bodies evolve. But later on, he kind of canceled that whole concept or idea um, when, he when he said evolution is, is really just another implant. So, you know, if, so if you're looking for consistency here, there isn't really a lot of it. Uh, so it makes it a little hard to, again, to answer some of these questions. But, um, but at the end of the day... 
there isn't really any difference between the human body and any other kind of body a Thetan could occupy. Okay, and that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me gab on at a mad rate like this. I hope my answers were entertaining, informative, and educational, as always. And I will remind you that this channel is fan-funded. All right, guys, thanks a lot for coming around. I always appreciate your viewership, and I will see you later. Bye-bye.